Hello and welcome to another edition of Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things. It's the um, irregular podcast where I talk to people who have genuinely shifted what they do um, in order to make a significant change to the sector or, or, or the industry that they're in. And today I talked to a real firebrand. I talked to um, Jonathan Porritt who is an environmental and social campaigner. He has um, been a member of and um, co- co-chair, I think, of the Green Party. He um, was uh, director of Friends of the Earth. He set up projects such as Beyond Gender 21. He set up Forum for the Future with Sarah Parkin and Paul Eakins. And he chaired the Sustainable Development Commission in those heady days um, of the new Labour government at the end of the 1990s and, and through the next decade. And the Sustainable Development Commission was instrumental in shifting government policy on a whole range of, of um, areas that were uh, revolutionary at the time. And I met Jonathan, um, we're trying to work it out, I think it's 20 years ago, yeah, it was 1999. I'd just taken a, a job as head of sustainability for Asda Walmart and I, I turned up on my first day only to be told that the next week I would be flying to um, flying to Austria to, to spend a week on a program run by the um, University of Cambridge, their, their program for industry. And um, I'm delighted, obviously, and even more delighted to find uh, that I was spending time with the great man. I actually, I met him a few years before in a job interview, which I didn't get, um, but actually it was the wrong job for me, to be fair. So um, absolutely no hard feelings about that one. Um, and, and what struck me about Jonathan, um, that, that week I spent with him, was the warmth and and the the compassion uh, he had nothing was too much trouble he spent time talking to you long into the small hours admittedly aided by a little whiskey um but but i i was nobody i was just i was just a young beginner in this world and with my first kind of big big job and jonathan took the time to, to, to mentor me across that week and, and that kindness stayed with me for a long, long time. So I'm not going to tell you his story. Um, I am going to say that this is the first of two uh, podcasts with him because we just didn't get through what we needed to get through in time. And actually, I didn't want to rush it. I really enjoy doing these and so I would rather do do two crackers than one compressed rushed one so so please enjoy the conversation and um i'll be back at the end oh my god what a big moment in your life tell me about it so um i have no script i have no plans we're just going to talk perfect and it's a really easy really simple start so i'm sat here um in the garden of the house of saint barnabas with um jonathan porritt who i've known we've just calculated for 19 (laughs) years which is a long time. It's a long time. Uh, Jonathan, uh, tell me about yourself. <laughs> well, no doubt we met because we were banging on about sustainability 19 yeah. years ago. Um, I have to tell you that's only that's less than half the amount of time I've been banging on about sustainability <laughs> as I actually joined the Green Party in um, 1974. So that's been uh, pretty much a lifetime's 
crusade, endeavour, whatever you like to call it. I did spend 10 years as a teacher while I was in the Green Party, which was great. But was, most that, the, of the, rest was that the year the Green Party started? No, it, would have been, it was actually called the People Party in those days. Um, oh. And then it became the Ecology Party. Yeah, I remember that. And that then it became phase, yeah. the Green Party. So it was, it was pretty early days, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'd read um, Blueprint for Survival and been reading The Ecologist magazine. Small is Beautiful, all these books. You ca I couldn't find anyone to talk to about it because hardly anybody was doing this stuff then. So I was reading a lot and then saw the a little advert for joining the only party that cares about these things. And I thought, yeah, I'll do that. Because it was so fucking obvious. Sorry, excuse me. It was really very obvious. No, no, swearing's good. No, no. That, um, yeah, that these things were going to get serious at some point in the future of humankind. We had a population was growing, an economy that was growing, a planet wasn't getting any bigger and couldn't ever, yeah. and we had no awareness about those basic constraints. So, yeah. And that would have been about the time of the first oil crisis, around about the 70, well the big one was the early 70s, yeah. yeah, and then second one in the late 70s. So, so there was a, but it's interesting, we, we look, I look back at the press coverage of that crisis, and it was never about ecology, it was always about economy. Yeah, you bet. How do, we, how do we keep the economy going exactly. when we don't control the No, oil? exactly. That was the time, of course, that Jimmy Carter decided it would be a good moment to put solar cells on the roof of the White House, don't forget, on the grounds that he did seriously lead a campaign in America advocating for renewable energy and energy efficiency, um, following up on the oil crisis. Yeah. But took the right route, you know, instead of saying, well, we can overcome this and we'll just open up new oil fields and we'll have new flows of oil, etc., etc. He said, look, it would be far better to base the economy. He, he was an astonishing president. I was in Atlanta recently and um, right next door to them, the Martin Luther King Museum oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Center yeah. is the Jimmy Carter Center. Mm, mm. And I hadn't appreciated, I was, I was six in 1974, <laughs> so I'm <was maybe> not <laughs> politically aware. <laughs> but but it, well, it didn't take long. Right? I joined Greenpeace about four years after that. <laughs> But um, I hadn't appreciated what a forward-thinking president mm. Carter was, and what a, um, a campaigner for peace and uh, civility he, he was. And it was brilliant to go and be reminded of mm. that. And, and, and going around the MRK Centre made me feel utterly mm. disgraced as well. Yeah, yeah. Because the 70s were, were an interesting time. We'd, we'd had the awakening of the late 60s, whether that be um, acid-based or whether that be <laughs> social justice-based. Um, and then things slowed down a little bit. And so you, you were a real forerunner. There weren't, you didn't have anyone to talk to you. You said that really eloquently. Not, not many people in the early 70s. It was just, it was a, there wasn't really a movement in the UK then. Friends of the Earth was just getting going, Greenpeace just getting going, the old establishment NGOs, WWF and RSPB, they'd been around for a bit, but I wasn't really particularly interested in that in those days. Um, so it was, a, it was a journey of discovery via literature, not via encounters. That's interesting. And what, what was it that, there would have been a point, there would have been a trigger that made you look for something? Can you remember what that was? Not. <laughs> it's like there's, you know, when you've got half your childhood memories are made up of things that your parents told you and you suddenly remember, oh yeah, I remember that. Of course, you don't really remember it at all. You just remember what your parents yeah, told you. Of course. You might remember 
but I've kind of persuaded myself that there wasn't really any one moment where the light dawned and that suddenly it was clear to me what needed to happen. Um, but I'd had the good fortune that between school and university, because my parents were living out in New Zealand at that time, I actually took a year and a half out from um, formal education and I spent a lot of that time planting trees and working on sheep farms in New Zealand and Australia. So I had a real intensity of engagement with natural systems. And planting trees was staggering. It was just me on my own day after day out there in the um, wind and rain planting trees. And I found it absolutely compelling. Just loved it. That's really interesting. Loved it. There's loads to go out here. Um, <laughs> this will be a, a two-parter. <laughs> At a time when most agriculture was removing trees and increasing grazing, your parents and was it your parents' farm. Well, we bought a seventy-acre patch of land in New Zealand. You were planting trees. I was planting trees, but then a lot of people in New Zealand were planting trees at that time. Okay. Yeah, no, this was a big movement, and don't—I don't want to make any false claims here. These were all commercial radiata pine, an exotic yeah. species in New Zealand, controversial from a biodiversity point of view. Yeah, sure. Um, but right in the middle of this land, which had mostly just become scrub, it had been farmed so intensively that it wasn't capable of doing any other kind of agriculture, um, was a bit of protected native bush. Yeah. Two hectares, but right in the middle, called the cathedral because of the beautiful native trees that were there. And when I when I had enough of planting trees in the wind and the rain, I would take off to the cathedral and just sit there. And although it was still wet and windy, it was so staggeringly beautiful. And in a funny kind of way, that's the first piece of land I connected with in what I would call more than a transactional way. Yeah, it was sure. a relationship. And, and I kept that relationship with that piece of land for as long as we were still um, involved in farming trees in New Zealand. But That's amazing. You know, in the end, in New Zealand, they get to be mature and ready for cutting down at about 30 years old. And you have to cut them down then because otherwise the wind will knock them down. Yeah. So we um, cut the trees down and it was too far away to replant by that stage. My life was completely in the UK and sure. you know, I wasn't going to fly out to Do you have a little New soft Zealand. spot for New Zealand? Definitely. My dad is a New Zealander. And uh, yeah, no, I've got a very big soft spot for New Zealand. So, actually. how old were you when you were planting trees? 18, 19? 18, 19, yeah. So, tell me about growing up. Where did you grow up? Where, where, where was your childhood? London, um, Hampstead, um, lovely childhood, uncomplicated, happy, um, 400 yards away from Hampstead Heath. Oh. So, <laughs> I know, look, this stuff. I feel, I sometimes feel that there were lots of things pointing in the same direction. Yeah. And those are the days, so this is, you know, 1950s, when nobody cared about there being dodgy characters out on the heath, and my mum would quite happily, I had a brother and a sister, and in the summer holidays she'd kind of say, yeah, just get out of my hair, go and play on the heath, and we'd head off to the heath and we'd take a picnic lunch and we'd be out there day after day just messing around on the swimming 
damning, actually. We <laughs> <laughs> Disturbing natural watercourses, Jonathan Porritz. <laughs> I know, I know. I look back on that with some sense of responsibility. But um, damning was much more fun than swimming. <laughs> and tree climbing. I did get my love of tree climbing in those days. That's amazing. Yeah. And what, what, were the, what were the sensorial memories from that time? What did you... What did, what did your childhood taste of, look like, smell of? What were the clothes that you wore? How, how, how were you sent, you connected clearly to nature. How were you connected to culture? <laughs> Do you know, I don't think I have ever been asked that question before. It's my job. <laughs> and it's intriguing, because I actually don't know how to answer that question. I didn't really have any um, culture enthusiasms in those days. I was, I was a really swatty student. I used to work so bloody hard yeah. and I used to play games like a madman. So sports? Sports. Or, yeah. Sports. I was involved in every sport under the sun. And, um, and look, again, I had the fortune of having two parents who'd come from very different background from mine. My mum from a good working class family in Lincolnshire, my dad from a middle class family in New Zealand. Both believed that education was the one thing that mattered most in everybody's lives. Sure. So made a priority of sending their children to private schools. Yeah. Sent myself and my brother to Eton. Um, I loved it, my brother unfortunately hated it. Younger than you? Younger than me. So difficult. But I just thought it was um, it was the most amazing place to be for five years. Yeah. And I absolutely loved it and the quality of teaching was amazing. Yeah. And uh, people were fun and as I say sports were a big part of my life in those days. So it was honestly five years of um, extraordinarily easy opportunity. This was late 50s, this, early 60s? No, this is now early 60s, 63, 63 to 68. So musically, <laughs> this is a really exciting time. <laughs> I'm going to drag you back here, Jonathan. Okay. This was the beginning of the Beatles, the beginning of the Stones, tinge of Donovan, folk, edgy. So I'll own up, I couldn't have cared less. I love that about you. I just couldn't have cared less. And in fact, there was a moment, and I remember this. I do remember well because when I was in the last year at Eton, we were joined by someone from America, from Memphis in America, who came over for the last year of his schooling. Yeah, from America. Six, sixth form. This is sixth form. Yeah. So I was seventeen. Yeah. He got into trouble in Memphis, so his parents had somehow fixed up for him to go to Eton. <laughs> Don't ask That's me. It's a massive leap. <laughs> it is a massive leap. But he turned up. And um, God, he was absolutely amazing. And he was so seriously into music. Yeah. From coming from Memphis. So suddenly at the age of 17, and I was a bit in awe of him because he was clearly a bad lad and was trying to sort his own life out and was very funny and so irreverent and just the most charming person and a brilliant, brilliant friend, a lovely friend. But I learnt probably more from him in that one year about music than in my preceding 17. 
I love the idea of this American cultural accelerator. Exactly. Seriously. Love this idea. <laughs> so, so, so you you left Eton and then you went to you went then went to New Australia, Zealand, Australia. To New Zealand, Australia. Spent a lot of time there and uh, and um, had a, again just incredible experiences one after the other. Um, came back then university Oxford. Yeah. Uh, not interested in the environment per se at that stage, um, but kind of got a good degree out of Oxford. What did you I study? Did you I studied do? French and German. Okay. Has it been useful for you in your career, Jonathan Porritt? When I left Oxford, I decided the last thing I was ever going to do was try and teach irregular French verbs to lots of <laughs> recalcitrant children. So, so I taught English and drama, much closer to my natural orientation. Um, T- tell me about the drama. That was a, that became a really big thing for me. I mean, I I, end, I ended up teaching in this incredible comprehensive school in West London, um, near Shepherd's Bush. Yeah. And it was, I just loved it completely. It was amazing. It was tough. It was a, it was one of those. Uh, it was a difficult school, catchment area just off the M40, White City Estates. Huge it, percentage yeah. of um, immigrant children at that yeah. stage. But this was in the glory days of the Inner Luncheon Education Authority. And believe it or believe it not, we had proper services of every kind to help kids arriving in the country, in the school, had education psychologists, one permanently based in the school. I mean, just extraordinary level of support. And the school itself had a brilliant ethos. It was just um, incredible. So I completely loved that. And I spent nine years in that school. Um, and that was where I began to explore what it was that these kids were really missing in their lives. And there were lots of deficits, obviously, yeah. lots, um, which the school tried to make up for as best it could in all sorts of ways. But one deficit, there was just no access to the natural environment at all in any description. And most of the, the kids had never seen darkness because they have these ghastly sodium lights across all these estates, so they never get to see the stars. They never experience silence because yeah. the M40 is pounding past day in, day out, all through the night. So the deficit, the nature deficit, which is a phrase I learned early so through really, the experience. They're powerful words. They really are, and very, very important. And so when I was five years into my career as a drama and English teacher, um, experimenting a lot with using drama with the classes I was teaching as a way of creating trust differently and providing kids with a different sense of who they were and so on. Um, One of the things I did then was to set up a kind of club where we took kids off to Wales to learn about a bit about farming bit about nature, a bit about themselves. And those are the days where health and safety was not the kind of iron-clad prison that it is now. You could just get them to bring a slip from their parent, bung them in the back of a minivan and head off. With no seatbelts. <laughs> With no seatbelts. Bench seats. <laughs> exactly. Essentially a Newton's cradle in a vehicle. I know. Don't. But it was wonderful. And we did that twice a year for several years. That's really interesting. Um, in the middle of that last section you talked about using drama to help people understand themselves find themselves forget the exact words that you used 
what helped you find who you were, or, or were you were you one of those really fortunate people that had a very clear sense of self at an early age, or did you need drama to do that for you? I had a clear sense of myself in a limited way. I didn't have a clear sense of what my energy would be directed to. When I left um, Oxford, I <laughs> spent two extraordinarily painful months at the College of Law yeah. in London training to be a lawyer. And I thought, I honestly thought, and maybe I persuaded myself or there'd been something in the what your parents thought would happen. I was always gabby, you know, I always talking and arguing. So I think my mother felt the only way I could possibly be useful to anybody would be <laughs> getting myself into a position where I could just talk a lot. Argue for a living. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> Which is essentially where you ended up. Yeah, but far a different route. Of course, of course. So after that two months, and I was actually really... I, it happened quite quickly and I suddenly began to realize I really wasn't interested in the law at all and I certainly wasn't interested in the law as a means to getting rich which I'm sorry to say was the principal motivation for a lot of people on this course. Anyway, so I bailed out and the week after that went as an emergency relief teacher to the East End just teaching a school in Newham yeah. um, without any teaching qualification, nothing. But as the head of English said when I got there, said, you won't want to do French and German, Jonathan, you really won't. But we've got four vacancies in the English department. You're six foot two, you've got a loud voice, you know nothing about teaching, but you're gonna be perfect. <laughs> so, and I literally started teaching. Was there any hesitation? Did you, did you for one minute think this might not be for me? No, 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 because having made a decision about what I knew I wasn't, I'd always had in the back of my mind that I would enjoy teaching a lot. I felt I felt a natural disposition to to go into teaching. Do, do you do you see yourself now as a teacher? Yeah. Yeah, in all sorts of different ways. Of course. Just via different media and different opportunities. It was a long time. I used to think I would go back into teaching, to be honest. But then I got swept up by <laughs> Friends of the Earth and the Green Movement, and that was that, as it were. So how did um, that happen? Um, I, this is, this is actually still a bit remarkable in that um, I was, in 1984 I was looking around for an, another job in teaching because I got as far as I could get in yes. this school, um, in the school in, in um, Shepherd's Bush. And so I'd started reading um, adverts for headships. <coughs> and while I was doing that, I came across this advert for director of Friends of the Earth. And I'd been in the Green Party for 10 years already, so I knew a lot about Friends of the Earth. You, were you, you, you weren't leading at this point? Mm, no, I'd stopped 1984. I'd just stepped down as co-chair in 1984. Yeah. Okay. Um, and Friends of the Earth was small then. It was a tiny organisation. There were eight people in Friends of the Earth at that time. But I just thought, my God, someone's going to pay me to do all my environmental crusading. Um, so I just decided then and there I'd have a go at that. And then I thought, I actually didn't think I'd get it anyway, because I know that Friends of the Earth people don't like Green Party activists, because Friends of the Earth tries always to be non-party political, which is correct. Yeah. 
And there were a lot of people in Friends of the Earth in those days who thought the Green Party was um, a waste of space, if I'm being honest. So I thought the odds were against me. Um, and then when I did get the job, I thought, well, we'll see how this goes. And if it doesn't go well, I'll go back into teaching. What's the first thing you did in that new role? Suffer. Is it really hard? <laughs> I have to say, I've still got friends who were there. They, these people are still my friends. I have to be a bit tiny bit careful, but they did not make my life easy as the incoming director of Friends of the Earth. And it was compounded by the fact the organization was very nearly bankrupt. They'd done an amazing job um, in terms of big set piece campaigns, particularly about Sizewell B, the nuclear yeah, reactor. I remember it. And, you know, done absolutely everything under the sun that could be done, but it had nearly broken the organization. And I didn't know what the finance, finances looked like when I accepted the job. I did know within a week. So, <laughs> but fortunately, the chair of Friends of the Earth at that stage, who was a wonderful campaigning crusader called Des Wilson, who is well known to people of that yeah. era. Des had got a couple of big donors in his pocket, as it were, who just said, yeah, Jonathan, don't worry. You know, we'll get this sorted. And he did, long before I did any fundraising. He got a couple of donors to come in and, and keep a lot of our campaigns going then on things like acid rain and yeah. uh, countryside campaigning, stuff like this, so recycling. At, at that point, climate change wasn't, no, wasn't, wasn't really even a there. thing. No. We did, Francis got into climate campaigning in the late 80s, um, but not, uh, not in the early 80s. I, I joined Greenpeace in, um, I would have been 1979, I think, 78. I joined it because I did a project on Greenpeace and the whale, those words yeah. came together. Yeah. Um, and I, I'll always remember my teacher of the time Although she only gave me 51% for that report, which got, which I'm quite upset about. <laughs> Originality got four out of 10. No one else did it, Jonathan. Therefore, it's totally original. <laughs> but I won't hold it against Mrs. Jackson. Um, you clearly do, if you yes, don't mind me absolutely. saying. Yes, absolutely. Um, don't cross me, ever. And um, But her and her daughter, through my membership, bought the t-shirts and the bags, even when the last river has run dry, all those. And even then, back in 1978, <laughs> There was this projecting how good you were th through possession. Yeah. They never joined. They never joined. They mm. just used it as a way mm. of expressing how great how great they were. Mm. And th that kind of virtue signalling is is really interesting, and we see it we see it today, which maybe we'll come on to in the, in, in episode two. <laughs> yeah. We've only got to 1984, mate. I'm so sorry. <laughs> What's going on I'm here? fascinated by people's childhoods. I'm absolutely fascinated by them. And it's a curse. Um, what I'm really interested in is, what would you say your top three successes as the, 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 the face, the leadership of Friends of the Earth were? I had an amazing opportunity because I joined, I could not have joined at a better moment. The organization was at a low point. We didn't know it at the time, but environmental issues were about to take off in the mid to late 1980s. Mrs. Thatcher even became a kind of crusader about the ozone hole and yeah. climate change in 1988. And there was suddenly this enormous upswing in concern about the environment. Um, 
so I would say that we successfully rode that wave. I wouldn't put in more than that. We couldn't have done it without the wave being there, yeah. but we did ride the wave successfully. The second thing that I think we were able to do was to start using really good science more effectively and to take away some of the sort of rougher end of the image of Friends of the Earth. It had always been very good at the campaigning, but it hadn't really marshaled evidence until it did the brilliant things like the Sizewell Inquiry and yeah. so on. So, and the early evidence that we gathered on um, acid rain in particular. And we turned that into a really smart part of what Friends of the Earth was doing. So kept radical, yeah. but ensured respectability through good science. So that, so that trust in expertise yeah, in, in critical. science, absolutely critical. And still is for me. And I learned all of that in my time at Friends of the Earth. And then moving into, we're going to skip a bit, but moving into form. I've only given you two. Oh, yeah, you have. Can't, can't Give me you your third. No, I'm so sorry. I'll get back in my box. Give me your third. No, because I know somebody will be listening to this and say, where's the third one then, You're right, they will. <laughs> they will. So what's your third success? The third was, and this was, I only mentioned this because it was such fun, was that we could re-energize a local group network. It was quite a low ebb when I joined, but as things began to gather pace, local groups began to sign up again, and we ended up with more than 200 local groups. And they, they are the heart and soul of Friends of the Earth, and I just loved doing that. But it did, in the end, it was one of the reasons why I decided to leave in 1990, because you'd do a full week in the head office, as it were, and then, of course, all the local groups did everything they did on Saturday and Sunday. So then you'd get on a train and you'd be off for Saturday and Sunday. And eventually my wife said, Jonathan, it would be quite nice to see you a little bit more, especially since you've now got a daughter. I was going to say, you had kids at about this time, didn't <laughs> yeah, you? Exactly. I'll always remember some shitty article in the paper about nappies in your bin or some... <laughs> some no, some was it really cinema? zealous what had, had, had been looking into my shopping trolley. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so, re it, 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 it's really challenging isn't it because when you become a tall poppy when you put your head on the block you're giving permission for people to, to yeah. look at your life in a bit more yeah. detail yeah. and all you can do yeah. is be honest exactly. that's, all, that's all you can do exactly so you left in 90 yep and when did Forum for Forum for the Future start? 96 so what did you do for those well, what I did, and I was, again, I think remarkably fortunate in this, I actually focused on the Earth Summit in 1992, immediately after leaving Friends yeah. of the Earth. And I got quite excited about this and did a huge project called The Tree of Life and wrote a book that, um, which happily went on to sell a million copies around the world yeah. um, called Save the, world, Save the Earth. And the royalties for that all went to help Friends of the Earth International. So that was... A massive piece of work it was just a huge piece of work and then the Earth Summit filled me with surprises I just had a ball there for three weeks met tons of people from sectors I hadn't really talked to before including a lot of business people um, a lot of people from the farming community who were there young people's organizations women's groups spiritual leaders there was a three-day spiritual summit during the Earth Summit in Rio I hadn't had any real contact with many of these 
constituencies of interest before. So I came back from the other summit thinking, bloody hell, this is a, there's a lot more to this than just campaigning to change government policy. And then started to think about new ways of organizing the energy, positive energy in people, rather than directing what is often quite negative energy in people, desperately keen to stop bad things happening. But it, can, it can make that whole movement oh, feel yeah. quite earnest well, and it can, hard. And, yeah. and unforgiving and yeah. a bit kind of finger-wagging. And I, I come pretty much to the end of my own reservoir of um, playing on people's fear, guilt and anger. The unholy troika of emotional gambits that I had. And I'd done it, you know, for 20 years by then. Fear, guilt and anger. Yeah, and you can't go on and on. That's not good for your soul. It's not good for your psychological resilience. So actually, the big thing I needed to do is to come back and build something that was very different in its, in its objectives, in its goal, and work with this positive energy in people. And Forum got set up. Actually, we created the Forum in 1994, but it didn't get launched officially until 1996. I think I had an interview with you in about, I'm trying to think, it would have been 97, 98. Right, right. It was Ben Tuxworth Twist's job. Oh, right. That one. Okay. And in Cheltenham. Yeah. And it felt at that point like there was something really important happening in yeah. Cheltenham. It felt like you'd, you'd got the zeitgeist and you'd got the right people in the right place at exactly the perfect, the perfect time. It was, um, it was amazing. I mean, I, I hope I don't have to set up any more new organizations, although you never know, because it is always quite hard work. <laughs> but um, but this, was a, this was a joyful time, and we, and we did, at one stage, the Cheltenham office was the main office for the forum, and our London office was quite small by comparison. Yeah. And we ran all our public sector work out of Cheltenham. And although we don't do much public sector work now in, in Forum for the Future, um, courtesy of the Tory Lib Dem coalition in 2010 that crushed all of that public sector enthusiasm for sustainability. Dreadful time. Dreadful. Really, you look at the cumulative damage done to local and regional sustainability initiatives in that intervening eight, nine years. Oh, my God. It's almost a complete wipeout. Oh, I think it was. It, yeah. Well, there was a time in the 1990s where 85% of local authorities in the UK had their own local agenda plan, specifically as we're responding to the Earth Summit and the, the Agenda 21. I, I remember I, I, was, I was working at Bradford Council at that point, <coughs> which is from where I came to the interview with you, actually. <coughs> and our Agenda 21 team was well-meaning but ineffective. Right. <laughs> they were lovely people, but... And they had an Agenda 21 community evening, and they got three or four people along. And I thought, well, I, I was working with business. I thought, I'll do a business Agenda 21. Right, okay. So um, I, I ran it. I got a guy called Nick Mayhew, who you may or may not yeah, know. Yeah, I know Nick. To yeah. come and do um, half an hour, and he was amazing. And bang, flash, wallop, as Nick does. Exactly. I was a bit showy as well. And, um, <laughs> nah, really? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and, well, um, understated shows and all and that. We had, all that. Yeah. And we had 150 people. And I had 150 businesses, and I had all of them sign up to Agenda 21 mm. pledges. Yeah. And it felt like something yeah. was happening. No, it really did. I tell you, that was through the 90s. That was amazing. And there was a lot of 
cross-sectoral energy there, readiness to work with each other, civil society groups, NGOs, getting the hang of being better partners for yeah. local government and for business. And there was a definite sense that this was the way in which we could create wealth more intelligently for the future. And that's what we had to get sorted. It was that. Yeah. It was the recognition that economy and ecology are so inextricably exactly. linked. And, I, and I, I ran a workshop last night with Interface. I did a talk at Clerkenwell Design Week for Interface. I've been working with Interface for over 20 years. Yeah, I knew exactly. Ray Anderson. They're yeah, they're amazing. Um, and, and to be able to, to, to link back into a company that really got that mm. those early years, that without one there is not the other, mm. that, that just isn't, was, was ace. And then the end of the 90s, early 2000s, when, when did the Agenda 21 dream die? Well, it didn't actually die. It kept going all the way through the first decade. Did it? Yeah, it did. And the, it reached its high point, actually, in around 2005, 2006. And that was the time when the Labour government had also introduced a whole raft of regional bodies. Yeah. So regional assemblies yeah. and regional development, development agencies. agencies. Yeah. Um, the whole health service then was reorganized on a regional basis. But the text changed the, and they became everything. regional. Yeah, I remember. So it was a very... Then you had a really powerful combination of regional bodies and local. Yeah. local authority and other local You were advising Labour government on some of this stuff, weren't you, at the time? Was well, I was right? chair of the Sustainable Development Commission through yeah. the first decade of this century, yeah, yeah, which was great. And, and it was a, a government that wanted to listen and wanted to make things happen. And they weren't always happy about the advice that the Sustainable Development Commission gave them, but fair play, they were pretty bloody amazing. Why have a sustainable development commission and not listen to them? Even if you, you, you've, got to, exactly. you've got to accept the experts, haven't exactly. you? Exactly. And they did listen most of the time. That's amazing. And just um, the interesting thing for me, I remember that era at the end of the late 80s, early 90s. I remember seeing on the front page of, of, of the Daily Mail a load of you know, environmental concerns coming to life. And it felt like we were, something mm. was going to change. And I remember the optimism of Agenda 21. And it feels like we're somewhere back to it now with Extinction Rebellion, with Greta, with Plastic Geddon. Plastic Geddon, I, I, yeah. I, I, I may not agree with every criticism of it, yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it feels like we're at a point where stuff could change again. How do you see it? Yeah, it's fascinating for me because bits of the system are ready for an accelerated period of change again. Um, I think particularly civil society, um, community, there's, you know, despite 10, 12 years of remorseless austerity, the energy at the community level is extraordinary. And there's no doubt that this is a place where a lot can happen in the, in the in the short term. And Extinction Rebellion has come out of that community-based, radical, green tradition. Earth first type of... Earth first. Yeah. But also smart. I mean, the 10 days in London was brilliantly organised, done in the most smart way. Inclusive, It, was, it felt a clever. celebration. It, exactly. It... it, it, it it, it, all of those things I, I really object to about sustainability, that it's miserable, <laughs> austere, less joy. I'm on Waterloo Bridge thinking, yeah, I know, exactly. this, is, this is fun. Exactly. Who, who wouldn't want to join this movement? Yes. Yeah. So this is huge. 
young people are in all of these different initiatives now. Um, there's a wonderful movement in the U.S. called Project Sunrise, which is doing the whole story about Green New Deal for the U.S. Wow. Um, school strikes around the world, Greta Thunberg. These are very powerful parts of the system. From the perspective of government, however, we've got hollowed out institutions now at the local level, nothing at the regional level. Most of our public services have been beaten down for so long now. Extraordinarily difficult for schools to make a really strong um, organizing principle around sustainability for the future of the children in that school. So we've lost a lot of ground there, and it's going to take a lot to make that up. And in business, 20 years now of doing increasingly good stuff on corporate sustainability. Um, I refuse to use the phrase corporate social responsibility, so I don't think that's very helpful. It's a good phrase now. It's, it's gone, thank God. Um, I remember getting myself into deep hot water when I first said it's time we kill this one off, because really you've got to look more broadly and radically at the kind of shift you we need. You into the heart Absolutely. of the organization and what yeah. they do and why they do it. Yeah. And a lot more companies are doing that now. So business could be doing far more. I'm worried that they've plateaued. There's a kind of sense of, we're doing our bit now, but look, we can't really push much more because government isn't changing the rules of the game and the market still performs in such ways to militate against everything we do around yeah. sustainability. still makes it hard. Nobody wants to change the notion of shareholder primacy. I Any of that stuff? Very conversation last night when we, those shareholder primacy um, rules, mm. uh, methods were put in place when that's the only way you could measure good. We yeah. can measure good in exactly. so many different ways. Exactly. And yet we're failing to dismantle the workings of capitalism. Well, capitalism 1.0. Will Self, <laughs> Will Self, Will Hutton, some really interesting writing on this. Yeah, I wrote a book on this too. I'm surprised you can't I've not, quote I've, me chapter and verse on it. Jonathan, that. I'm ashamed. What? I can't Don't remember. tell me. You can't remember. <laughs> 2005, I would have hoped it would be indelibly etched in your memory as <laughs> the, the go-to book on capitalism. What was the book called? Capitalism as if the world matters. Oh, God, I've got it. <laughs> I've got it. I read it. I'm no, an idiot. I'm joking. I've just become a grandfather, Joe. Uh, exactly. my, my head scrambled. Yeah, no, this is probably the equivalent of just giving birth. Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I've only mentioned that because I wrote that just out of a sense of despair that nobody wanted to look at what we needed to do to change the rules of the game. But capitalism is the game we all play, the dominant economic paradigm. You're not going to get a sustainable, compassionate, just, fair world unless you change the rules of the game. And at the moment, corporate sustainability is about optimizing within the rules of the game. Sure. That is no longer good enough. The time of a climate emergency, grotesque injustice, a resurgence of autocratic populist politics, collapse of the natural world, biodiversity extinctions, you can't go on optimizing within a within system, system that is inherently unsustainable. So we're going to have to look again at what we mean by corporate sustainability. You're always early. You're always early with movements. Are you hopeful for what's coming next? I am. You feel like we've, we've, we've got ahead of steam, that the, 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 the snowball has enough weight now? I am more hopeful now than I've been for a long time, even though I say that against the backdrop of evidence coming back from the earth, which is spirit-crushing, because it's going so fast. Accelerating climate change is so unnerving. But I am, I just, 
we've always known that that empirical evidence would crop up in our lives. It's, it's been obvious for decades. But it's right there in front of people right now. And that's changing minds and ideas and behaviors at a faster rate. So we've got these two things going at the same time. At least it means that there is a, a serious play now about putting in place a different way of creating and distributing wealth. So I'm, yeah, I'm genuinely hopeful about that. That's brilliant. And the, I, what I love, and we're going to finish on this because I know you've you've got something to get to what I really love is the is the is the combination that the, the the interaction between economy and ecology and, and how we make more money by selling less stuff how we change yeah. the model yeah and that's where we're going to go with the next conversation perfect Jonathan Porritt you are Brilliant. an absolute legend thank <laughs> well, no, you that's, that was good fun oh you're incredible I mean you can you can tell from there the kind of guy that he is uh, he's always early he's always ahead of the curve and he, he, he trusts in science and he trusts in logic. And um, in a world where those two things are in, in a world, in a country where those two things are increasingly less um, valued, it's so refreshing to, to meet someone or to spend time with someone who really values them and who, who sees the benefit for society in applying them well. So um, I, I hope you enjoyed it. Keep your ears peeled for um, for episode two of that one. It'll be within the next few weeks. And um, if you've got any feedback, any comments, please let me know. Mark at thisisapeape.co.uk. And um, thank you for tuning in. Cheers. <laughs>